Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Adventures in DevOps. This week on our panel, we have Henry Jukes. I hope I said that right, Henry. Yeah, yeah. How are you doing today, Chuck? Doing great. We also have Jeffrey Groman. Hey, Chuck. How are you? Doing all right. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Doing all kinds of interesting stuff these days, but we're not talking about me. We're talking to Ram. Do I dare try and say your last name? Sure, Chuck. Uh, Rom, why don't you introduce yourself? Let us know who you are, why you're famous, you know, all the important stuff you're doing. Yeah, all that good stuff. Thanks, Chuck. Hi, everyone. Ram Kailas Nathan here. I'm a senior director of uh, a product within Oracle Cloud Infrastructure team. And, you know, it's exciting to be part of this show. As part of my day-to-day job, I constantly meet with customers, learn about what their needs are, and then obviously work closely with the engineering teams to build the right products and services for our customers. It's it's pretty exciting to be part of this show. Thank you so much. Yeah, glad to have you. Hey folks, one of the things that I find that really makes a difference for people being happy in their job is working in a place that makes a difference. And there's a terrific company out there that's looking to hire full stack developer just like you, and that's Faith Life. Their average tenure is five years. I mean, five years, that's forever in developer years. Usually I see people changing jobs every one to two years. People are sticking around because they're great. They have a great values-based culture and they are hiring developers in the United States. They're looking for full stack developers who can do C Sharp or JavaScript on the back end and React on the front end. Go check them out at devchat.tv slash faithlife. That's devchat.tv slash faithlife. I'm a little curious. So cloud and uh, cloud native stuff. I mean, it's a giant bucket, right? And there are smaller buckets within it. So what exactly do you do within the Oracle cloud ecosystem? Yeah, that's a great question. Essentially, when you take a look at cloud native, as you rightly point out, there's a number of different aspects. I primarily focus on Oracle Kubernetes engine, API Mm -hmm. gateway, and functions. I, I used to do that like up until recently, and now I'm moving towards really focusing on the developer needs across a whole broad portfolio of things that they might need across the various, across the life cycle, the develop, development life cycle. And so initially I started out with OKE, API gateway and functions, and now I'm taking a broader role to look at developers and really understanding their needs and really figuring out what additional services we might need, need to offer. For example, CI/CD could be one of the things. IDE could be another thing. These are a number of different things that we're looking at. Ultimately, the goal from my perspective is how do you attract more and more developers to Oracle Cloud? So with that goal, right. I look at various services. Now, it's interesting because you keep saying developers, but what I found is that things have diverged a bit. Like initially when we were talking DevOps, it was mostly developers taking on ops responsibilities. But nowadays, it really is its own field, right? You've kind of got ops in the traditional sense where they go and they build out a data center and they put in a whole bunch of hardware and they, you know, they manage all the the systems on there. And maybe they have things that reflect sort of cloud infrastructure in the sense that they use VMware or Kubernetes or something like that. And then you've got DevOps folks that 
they they merge a little bit into that, but they mostly live kind of a level up from that where it's how do we make our applications take advantage of the capabilities of all of the hardware in the data center and what it can do, right? And then the developers just build apps and make assumptions. This is going to run as a function. This is going to run as a this. This is going to be deployed to Kubernetes. And they don't think much more about it beyond the fact that this app is eventually going to wind up in a container that winds up on a machine somewhere out there. So when you're talking about getting developers onto Oracle Cloud, I mean, what does that look like as opposed to sort of the DevOps approach? Yeah, that's, yeah. When you take a look at the developer landscape, as you rightly pointed out, there are different focus areas. You know, you have the infrastructure piece, which is now getting automated into infrastructure as code, and there are many tools available, and you see a number of developers focusing on this. And then you get into, you know, somewhat of the the older terminology called middleware, where you have a number of services really providing middleware kind of services. You know, it could be API Gateway, it could be other other aspects, it could be streaming, it could be workflow technologies, right? And then you have the, the traditional applications or, or the modern applications, application developers in the true sense. When we are when we talk about developer adoption, we primarily focus on the, the latter two categories, meaning the, the application developers, be it, be it you know, the traditional apps built on Java or any of the modern polyglot-based applications, and more specifically, really focusing on the DevOps and the DevSecOps kind of developers who are really building automation and providing the necessary capabilities to, to enable rapid innovation and application development. So we are going after the, the, those two categories, the application developers and the DevOps. And so both those combined is what we mean by developer adoption for internally. Gotcha. So within Oracle, you know, you've talked about a few different areas that you're focusing your efforts in building this out. But, but you know, what does the vision for cloud native really represent at Oracle? And, and kind of what are the things that you're really trying to spearhead on a you know more initiative basis? Yeah, as an organization, we we when we think about developer services and developer services portfolio in particular. We, we think about the first category being, you know, how can we make it easy to start and adopt? Because always when we see uh, developers jumping, jumping into anything new, they want to first initially try out a few things. They want to look at the console and see you know, what it feels like, you know, maybe a quick start guide, maybe the SDKs and CLIs. Maybe they want to just try out a few things in the always free tier, which we offer for, for a select set of services. So that's, that's the first area. And then the second area is really around core application development, as I mentioned briefly before. You know, it, it involves, from a cloud-native standpoint, it's anything from API design to the API gateway aspects of things to cloud shell to resource manager. Think of it as Terraform as a service. And then, you know, container registry and, and even source control, right? And then as you start moving towards the next category, which is deploy, there you start looking at an API gateway, CI CD, streaming, Oracle Kubernetes engine functions, right? Different options for, for developers to deploy their modern applications. And then on the far right, you have the operate, which is day two and beyond. Anything from monitoring to logging to events, notifications, email service. So 
This is how we actually internally view in a cloud native and developer services portfolio. And it pretty much encompasses various aspects of the life cycle, essentially. That's a lot. And it's interesting, too, because I have paid for various services to do various different parts of that. Yeah, we wanted it's it's a comprehensive view on things. And everything that I mentioned about 80 or 90 percent of things we already have as as, as services. And some of this is, is you know, in the roadmap and in, in the thought process. So with a lot of these different services, you know, obviously there's these are all common things that we're, we're familiar with seeing, you know, problems that, that we experience again and again in the developer operations space. How are you guys leveraging kind of open source technologies for this? Is a lot of this kind of services built that are purpose-built in, in certain ways or customized in certain ways? How do you kind of approach that build versus yeah. leverage? That's a great question, Henry. Essentially, when you take a look at how we actually think of building services, we have a pretty standard strategic thought process and, and, and pillars, how we think about building these services. And we actually have three important pillars. We need, when we think about building cloud-native services, it starts with really providing a complete, starts with delivering tools and services that are complete, integrated, and open with, and then, actively participate in terms of leveraging open source services as well as participating in the, in the community-driven open source you know, technologies, whether be it participating in, in the CNCF, investing in Kubernetes, Docker functions. By the way, we, we are the, you know, possibly one of the only companies offering a serverless platform of, that, is, that is based on open source. It's, it's based on an open source project called FN. And, and so open source is very much a core part of our thought process in building pretty much any new service. And then we look forward to differentiating in terms of, both in terms of quality of implementation, service and operational excellence as well. And by that, I mean, you know, full and transparent management. So uh, as a user coming and using some of these uh, services, you don't have to think about some of the backend management aspects of things. You can just come in and use it, and you have everything from logging, monitoring, uh, and to the, the the core service capabilities. Everything available from from day one. You don't have to put together anything, you know, from scratch. And then we also think about security and compliance end to end as part of any new cloud native service. So that really formulates how we think about cloud native from a strategic standpoint. Rob, I'm curious, when you know, when you're talking about security and compliance, I mean, it sounds like you, you are pretty, you know, working pretty closely with, with, with your customers. What, what are their biggest concerns from the security standpoint or compliance standpoint that you hear? Yeah, it, we talked to a number of these enterprises and especially with the advent of cloud native and uh, DevOps and DevSecOps, we see a lot more customers, you know, mentioning about it's not just the security team now who thinks about security. Right? It's about like democratizing the the concept of security among all the development members. You know, whether be, be it an application developer, be it an infrastructure developer, or the security team. I think uh, the new mandate is everybody should think about security and compliance, and it has to shift left. It has to start all the way from the build. Uh, to QA, to deploy, to then in production. Previously, it used to be a production you know, category aspect. 
Now we have seen it shift left all the way to the build stage. And it's also interesting from an industry perspective, we see a number of these vendors offering various tools and technologies across the, the, the four stages that I mentioned. And so, and that democratization is happening at various, you know, it, different organizations have different pace in terms of adopting this DevSecOps and DevOps team. And so in some cases we see this a current, as a current practice, while in others, we're seeing this as being carefully looked upon and, and you know, they're in the initial stages of trying it out. So it's a, it's a mix when it comes to enterprise customers, but the, the big takeaway, at least for us as an organization is, we need to offer tools at these various aspects of the life cycle and also partner with the cloud native security ecosystem in terms of offering these capabilities. In fact, we are, we, we've been working very closely with the likes of Twistlock, Aqua Security, and a few other security vendors uh, to essentially qualify some of their products on top of OCI so our cloud-native customers can get the benefit of this better together. Interesting. Yeah, and one of the reasons I ask that is, is you know, I, I've been sort of watching um, how, for instance, like Amazon and Azure have really sort of been looking at things and, and you know, at least, you know, looking at from the outside, I can see that, I mean, there's really two areas, I think, of focus. One is, you know, from the, as you said, DevSecOps or, or even from the application security standpoint of, hey, let's, let's stay on top of, you know, as we deploy or as we build and deploy, what, uh, you know, what vulnerabilities or what, what might we be exposing out there? We got to keep an eye on that and we've got to get, you know, we've got to identify that quickly and, you know, roll out a fix quickly. So that's one piece of it. But the other piece is, that it's still a lot of infrastructure. So you want to make sure that you've got the logging behind it and you've got the instrumentation. And I'm seeing that, you know, again, like from the Amazon and Azure standpoint, they're really trying to trying to build in tools on both of those sides. They're trying to build in tools to help identify issues, you know, within within your code or within your infrastructure, but also helping you to sort of instrument and get security analytics, you know, out of the cloud and then, you know, either you know, where you can either digest it, I guess, within those cloud tools or even within your own tools. I'm curious how Oracle is. And, and if I'm going too far, by the way, uh, yeah. sorry, it's just sort of how I think about things. But if I'm going too far out of your purview, you know, I, that that's cool too. Thanks, Jeff. I think you're spot on in that you called out vulnerability scanning. In fact, if you take a look at any of the syndicated research or the, you know, research reports, you would see vulnerability scanning is number one use case that customers are looking for and asking for, especially in the, in the cloud native tech. And then you're also spot on in the sense that logging and, and really leveraging you know, SIEM tools, you know, log analytics tools become, is extremely important and, and it's becoming more of the norm in pretty much every single deployment. And so where I want to, uh, what I wanted to say is that from a logging perspective, we have, we've just launched a logging service and you know, it can be integrated with third-party analytics tools and technologies. And then from a vulnerability scanning perspective, it is something that's, that's very interesting. It's something that our customers are constantly asking for, and we've taken a strong note of it. And so that's something that we're definitely thinking about from a futuristic standpoint. And so, yeah, both these aspects are very much part of our thinking, and it's about a crawl, walk, run. And so as, as you 
rightly pointed out, some of the use cases that you're talking about is right now in, in the run category. And we are, you know, we're just in the, in the walk category at the moment. One thing that I think is interesting too, is you keep saying we, we're talking to our customers and they're telling us they need this. And I'm wondering, I mean, how much of that, because sometimes I talk to a whole bunch of people and they tell me they need something and it's, it's somewhat anecdotal, right? I have five or 10 or 20 people tell me something. And sometimes it really is indicative of a larger trend out in the community. So how do you tell the difference between those and what things are you seeing really kind of tick up that way? You know, is it concerns over security? Is it concerns over other things? And what kinds of technologies are you seeing in those trends and the concerns there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when we look at product planning or product management, one of the first things we apply is, you know, are we building services that are going to be applicable to the good 80, we apply the 80-20 rule, and we look to you know, focus on, on those use cases that really apply to that broad 80% of the category before attempting the 20% of the use case, you know, the 20% utility use cases. And suppose specifically when you take a look at something like Kubernetes, you know, it's Kubernetes is sort of catching like wildfire and you know it, its usage, especially in the production aspects, skyrocketing. And that essentially means containers, you know, usage of containers in production environments are also skyrocketing in that sense. And we're also, uh, there's very clear evidence that you know, most of these deployments are happening in public cloud, which is, you know, going back to Jeff's earlier point, he brought up, you know, some of the cloud players there. And so when you take a look at just Kubernetes, we have you know, a lot of empirical evidence, uh, you know, we have we look at CNCF surveys, we look at Gartner reports, uh, we look at, we do our own, you know, first party like, touching base with like the Fortune 2000s to really get a feel for what are the must-have services that we need to focus on before attempting some of the nice-to-have services. So when you take a look at, in terms of a prioritization, we start with must-haves and then focus on the differentiators before attempting other, other aspects. So that's how we think about prioritization. But specifically, when you take a look at Kubernetes, you have the, we have evidence that it has to be integrated with logging, monitoring, you know, APIs need to be provided, right? And then there's a bunch of storage-related use cases that come into picture, especially for the stateful workloads. There's this interesting networking set of requirements, especially you know, when you, the likes of Calico and others. And then we, we touched on security and compliance, which is, again, a core aspect of things. And then last but not the least, the service mesh. And service mesh becomes extremely, extremely important. Uh, we see the usage of service mesh again growing rapidly. People talk about Istio, console, and a whole bunch of other possibilities in that space. And so when we take a step back, just specifically focusing on just Kubernetes as, as an example, we look at number of these adjacent areas to really switching an end-to-end story for, for one service. Makes sense. I'm also curious, are you focused on a particular market segment? Because I think you've also mentioned enterprise a few times. So are you looking at enterprise customers or sort of the larger business category or the medium to small businesses? Or is this something that, you know, I'm fiddling around with my thing. I want to deploy it to a cloud. Why not Oracle Cloud? I mean, what what level are you at? Yeah, Oracle obviously has deep you know, pockets uh, within the enterprise space, especially the Fortune 2000s. That's 
lot of our install base is in the Fortune 2000 space, right? That said, Oracle is also quite popular in the mid-market and the SMB space for some of the offerings. And especially when you take, take a look at cloud NATO as a use case, you know, it's, it's difficult to avoid startups because a bulk of this cloud NATO adoption has been driven by the startups. And so we have go-to-market plans for all these all three categories that I just mentioned, enterprise, mid-market, and, and startups. That said, you know, if you take a look at our, our prioritization, it, it's really to go after and help the enterprises who are like, you know, struggling in some ways to catch up with, with, with the born in the cloud companies to really, you know, modernize themselves and, and innovate faster. But that said, our services are equally applicable to all these three categories, and we actively go after these three categories in terms of adoption. In fact, in some of our case studies, we, we ensure that uh, there's representation from all these three categories. Just to follow up from Chuck's question, I'm, I'm curious. So if I were to sort of flip that around, so if I'm, you know, if I'm a, um, you know, somebody who's sort of shopping around and saying, okay, we're, we're moving to Kubernetes or or we're sort of, you know, doing a migration or something like that for whatever reason, you know, so I'm looking at, let's say, OpenShift and Amazon and whatever else. What, what drives me to say, you know what, I think Oracle is the best solution you know, as opposed to these other, you know, hosting environments and, you know, companies? Yeah, obviously, when it comes to Oracle and Oracle Cloud, you know, we are, you know, the second generation cloud in that we've taken a look at the offerings that are out there and we have the advantage of starting a little bit later, but then really learning and applying a lot of learning that is, have gone ahead within the cloud industry and taking all those learnings and applying a much better and superior architectural thinking to putting together entire public cloud service. You know, we have a strong networking of isolation as well as no over subscription of the network. That's like one of the biggest benefits of, of adopting Oracle Cloud. Also, Oracle uh, having been a, an enterprise company for many, many years, security and uh, compliance thinking, you know, is, is, part of our, is part of day one. It starts from day one. And, and so we apply security and compliance-related use cases pretty much right from the get-go, as opposed to you know, building a core service and then really thinking about uh, security aspects. So from, for, for every service that we build, security and compliance are, are very much part of the core thinking. I would say those two aspects are the biggest differentiators. It's a security and compliance you know, first thinking and, and really providing the Gen 2 cloud, especially with that network isolation and uh, network not, not, not going to that network over subscription model. But in addition to that, if you take a look at pretty much any of the services that we offer, pricing is, again, a very interesting dimension. And our services are sometimes you know, an order of magnitude less expensive. So for the price-conscious customers, again, we offer some, some very interesting options compared to other cloud, cloud vendors. And, and then when you take a look at something like cloud NATO, there's thousands of technologies out there, like you know, literally hundreds and thousands of various new, new things coming up. Now, the way we approach cloud NATO is very methodical in the sense that we go and really take a look at you know, what is absolutely needed for the 80% the use case, the 80% bucket. 
and really focus on those aspects. And so those are, in a way, it's sort of a little bit more cleaner than like, you know, you have like tens and 20 different options and suddenly you're so, you know, overwhelmed in terms of how, you know, what to adopt when. And so that that is also, you know, not something that customers need to worry about when it comes to, you know, when, when it comes to adopting Oracle Cloud. We offer some standard set of services that are uh, something for which the use cases are fully tested. And then we, we bring in all the benefits that I, just, that I just mentioned. Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy experience for your customers? I mean, let's face it. The only way you're going to know that is by actually running it on production. So go figure it out, right? You run it on production, but you need something plugged in so that you can find out where those issues are, where it's slowing down, where it's having bugs. You just, you need something like that there. And Raygun is awesome at this. They, they just added the performance monitoring, which is really slick and it works like a breeze. I, I just, I love it. I love it. It's like, it's like you get the ray gun and you zap the bugs. It's anyway, definitely go check it out. It's going to save you a ton of time, a ton of money, a ton of sanity. I mean, let's face it. Grepping through logs is no fun. And having people not able to tell you that it's too slow because they got sidetracked into Twitter is also not fun. So go check out Raygun. They are definitely going to help you out. There are thousands of customer-centric, customer-focused software companies who use Raygun every day to deliver great experiences for their customers. And if you go to Raygun and you use our link, you can get a 14-day free trial. So you can go check that out at adventuresindevopspodcast.com slash Raygun. With such a wide surface area, all the different services that you're building on and, and kind of providing for customers, I guess, what have you been focusing on recently? What, what are new changes or, or trends that you've been able to kind of deliver on for your Oracle customers? Yeah, in terms of most recent announcements, there's, there's a whole bunch, but I'll call out a couple. We recently announced the drift detection for infrastructure resources using the resource manager service, which is essentially the Terraform as a service. And, uh, you know, basically infrastructure as a code is one of the recommended ways to achieve, you know, automation. Resource manager helps you in that regard, you know, by maintaining a snapshot of your infrastructure in, in the Terraform state files. And sometimes the actual infrastructure might deviate from the captured snapshot. And so in this scenario, you can run drift detection reports to determine if the provision resources have different states than those defined in the, the stack's last executed configuration. So that's a pretty interesting announcement. Another interesting announcement that we recently did was for API Gateway. And when API Gateway was announced and released, it had a custom authorization or authorizer capability that used the power, power of Oracle functions. Using the custom authorization authorizer, the API developer had to write a function to perform the authentication or authorization of the API request. This feature, while it provided great flexibility, it also meant that you know, coding had to be done. Whereas with the inbuilt JWT token validation, you can essentially you know, tend to the authentication and authorization use cases with just some configuration you know, rules as opposed to having to write code. That's another interesting announcement. And then we also, uh, for the notification service, we did this important integration with the Slack uh, tool, which is quite popular now everywhere. 
Many enterprise organizations are using the Slack platform as a replacement for email for the most time critical tasks. And so one could use this feature to get notified in your Slack channel for these small occurrences or for these common occurrences, I should say. So an event happens in your infrastructure. Say, let's say a database is provisioned, a new user is added to your admin group. So basically an alarm is triggered or, or you know, so you get all these notifications via Slack. And, and so that's, a, that's a, it, another interesting announcement. You know, so those are examples of announcements that we have made in the last few months. All right, so I'm a sucker for stories. And in some of the information that we got here, there's information about the digital transformations for like NetSuite or Responsys, HCM, CX Digital. I mean, there, there's stuff here, right? You have SaaS applications that Oracle owns and runs that it looks like you've done some of this stuff with, right? Some of the move to cloud, some of the... I, I, I hear people call it digital transformation, which is a term that I definitely don't love. But, you know, the, the idea, yeah, that, okay, I've got this SaaS, I, you know, maybe I set it up on virtual private servers, or I set it up on actual, you know, metal. And, you know, it's okay, well, this has to scale, moving it to the cloud makes some sense. So how does Oracle actually move its SaaS apps to the cloud? Like, what's that process like? And how do you determine which parts and which apps and at what time and how you're going to do it. How, how do you make those decisions? Yeah. In fact, I work very closely with almost all of these SaaS teams to onboard them onto uh, the cloud native and developer services stats. So whether it be at responses, NetSuite, IoT apps, you know, the CX cloud, a number of these, you know, SaaS application teams, the there's no one one size fits all here, Chuck. I mean, at the end of the day, it, it really comes down to a use case and and really what is the goal of a particular you know that the particular organization is trying to achieve. And so I have worked with these individual sort of SaaS teams in the from the perspective that you know want to understand what their immediate objectives are and really provide them with the, the right recipe. When you take a step back and really look at what are the various paths to this transformation? You know, there are at least a few paths, right? One path is like you have an existing application. They have, you know, but they are sort of constrained either because of time to market or because of rigid or fixed architecture. And for, for these kinds of situations, you know, you know, it's basically we recommend a lift and shift approach where you just bring the monolith application or big application in its existing format and just trans you know, bring it on to the, onboard them to the Oracle Cloud. The, the, there's, there's definitely the second category of applications where, you know, they don't have a whole lot of appetite for, you know, any major transformation, but they have some appetite, in which case we recommend bringing their application, the existing application in given form, um, as opposed to, you know, transforming it hugely, but just bringing it as it is, but then provide them with the opportunity to build their new capabilities utilizing the cloud native methodology. So it's basically a combo model where you see the, the bulk of the application running in its existing state and then a few new services you know, being developed with using the cloud native methodology. And then you have this last category where you know, the, SaaS, the SaaS customer, the SaaS team 
feels that the existing architecture is not going to be helpful in the medium term to long term. So they take the, the immediate hit of sort of, are, you know, really re-architecting their entire application using all the cloud native principles from day one. And so these three, we've, I've encountered all these three categories, but I would say that the bulk of the category, bulk of the customers are in one and two, meaning they want to, they have a lot of constraints, be it time to market or architecture based. So they want to just bring their application as it is just because of those constraints, or they have some uh, opportunity to innovate, but they want 90% of the application stays intact. And then for the 10% use case, they that said, we do have a couple of very interesting SaaS customers who said, no, we want to completely innovate from day one. That's, that's the best way for the medium term to long term. And so they have taken that last path as, as well. Makes sense. I guess what I'm looking for is we moved this over and it went really smoothly. And then maybe we moved this over and these are some of the challenges that we ran into. Yeah, we, we absolutely have a lot of lessons that, that we have learned jointly. Um, and the lesson number one is really, you know, things die and, and we have to just deal with it, right? I mean, that's that's one of the, the key lessons we learned, whether it be at Kubernetes or, or any other service. Uh, and so some of the SaaS teams coming in felt that you know, with Kubernetes, everything is, is taken care of and there's going to be no failures. And that was that's not really the case. You know, there are going to be interesting scenarios. And particularly, you know, I want to call out, you know, there are many scenarios where pods die. I mean, they get unhealthy, you know, stops responding or go out of memory. Somebody, you know, kills the pod manually because of an operator error or, you know, you want to scale out the cluster and rebalance the workload. Or the node, the pod, resides in dice. And then when you take a look at the, the node failures or the when do nodes die, it, it could be because you know, you're upgrading the VM image uh, that requires recreating the node or upgrading the kubelet, which requires again recreating the node or the node just stops working. And so those are a number of different possibilities that we, we've seen our customers you know, go through. The, the good thing is that you, know, you could you know, utilize Kubernetes which provides a whole bunch of tools for high availability, you know, all the way from ensuring that you know your stateful applications have multiple replicas, you know, ensuring that each part you have monitoring set up for each of the part, each one of these parts, uh, from a readiness perspective, from a health perspective, so unhealthy parts uh, can be automatically replaced, and then really leveraging the anti-affinity rules that can be defined. So Kubernetes. Um, can essentially place pods within different availability and fault domains. And then you can also leverage pod disruption budgets, which will prevent Kubernetes from bring, bringing down more pods than your application can handle. But essentially, I want to classify that and uh, the theme things die and deal with it, right? On one end, you have the challenges, and then the other end, Kubernetes offers a bunch of these tools. The, the second interesting learning that we have seen is, again, especially in the stateful applications space, we're seeing block volumes get used all the time, but sometimes they get overused for, for the wrong use case. So it's really trying to understand when, when should you use block storage versus file storage. And in our uh, experience working with these SaaS customers, we've found that block storage is really, really good you know, 
handling application and customer data, and not so much for storing log files. And and again, when it so that's where the file storage, say you know, using NFS comes a real handy where you could use ephemeral storage, file-based storage for logs and and the temp files, and then could also essentially allocate a small a small uh, amount of file storage for every pod. And so you could use it for some of the custom use cases that they may, have, they may have. The third interesting learning that we've seen is around monitoring and, and health checks. Without monitoring and health checks, you know, SaaS teams have no chance to you know, handle day to or day end scenarios. And so it becomes extremely, extremely important. And then so you, customers using Oracle Cloud, you has, have the opportunity to leverage Prometheus for, for gathering metrics, you know, typically some of the SaaS teams use Kibana and Elasticsearch for, for the logs. And then they also use a combination of uh, PagerDuty and a few other tools for, for alerts. And when it comes to health checks, it becomes you know, very interesting in that we see most of the SaaS teams use a readiness probe and a liveness probe. A readiness probe is essentially used to automatically add, remove parts to a service, basically. If you're bringing up a new web server, there is a, a time between when the part shows up and when it is ready to serve traffic, the readiness probe will be false until it is ready to serve traffic. And so it becomes interesting in that sense. And then you get to use the liveness probe, which tells uh, whether the pod is alive or not. Dead pods are replaced. The, the pod is, you know, the pod could be alive or not ready. In both cases, it's not too helpful, right? So it's very important to, to really attend to these dead or non-responsive pods. And, and we, we provide mechanisms using the Kubernetes service to, to really replace all these dead pods or in, in an automated fashion, and, and which becomes very handy to maintaining and achieving high availability all the time. And, and the last but not the least is the security and compliance part. Again, I want to emphasize that within, within you know, Oracle, pretty much every single team leverages the concept of a pipeline, a DevSecOps pipeline. And so there's a shift left security team that, that's constantly applied. You know, people you know, look for vulnerabilities much early in the life cycle and, you know, and fix, apply the fixes for these known vulnerabilities much ahead of time. But it also means that you know, more efficient use of these logs and monitoring to attend to application failures much ahead in the life cycle. Those are some of the learnings. Sorry for the long answer there, Chuck. I mean, those are like four different, very interesting teams that I have personally learned working with these various SaaS customers. Yeah, I think what I'm listening or looking for here is, I mean, I, you know, was there one that you really liked working on? I mean, I would say that working with these individual SaaS, SaaS teams, everyone ha had an interesting learning. So uh, it's very difficult for me to call out one specific aspect of things or one specific customer. You know, the, the, the four lessons that I presented was essentially, I would say, a common across a majority of the customers that I worked. The, the ones that, that, that I found most fascinating was the ones who took that hard decision of, of re-architecting from right from the get-go because that was such a hard decision to make, right? As opposed to taking the safe path of bringing the existing application over. So I would say in terms of the category of customers that, that 
I was very fascinated about, I was, I would say the, the category of customers who decided to, you know, re-architect their application for cloud native and, and, you know, as part of the transformation, taking that big risk, taking that extra time and additional time to, to getting the application architecture right, right from day one. Sounds good. Henry, Jeffrey. I think we covered a lot so far. I don't have anything top of mind on my end. Yeah, I, I, I think I'm good too. All right, good deal. Well, I guess the last thing that we're going to ask then is if people want to learn more, where do they where do they find more information? Yeah, they, they can definitely go to developer.oracle.com where we offer a whole bunch of tutorials, hands-on labs, and sessions and articles that they can leverage from. And we also have a link to the Oracle free trial services uh, so they can sign up for free trials and leverage all these articles and, and uh, tutorials to, to learn more and build applications, uh, trial applications on Oracle Cloud. Awesome. All right. Well, we're going to roll into the last section of the show, which is picks. Leveling up is important. I spend at least an hour every day learning ways I can improve my business or take a break and listen to a good book. If you're looking to level up, I recommend you start out with the 12-week year as a system to plan out where you want to end up and how to get the results you want. You can get it free by going to audibletrial.com slash code. That's audibletrial.com slash code. And picks are just cool stuff that we shout out about. So a lot of times it's books or movies or tech tools or stuff we're working on or, you know, any and all of the above. So yeah, it'll be really interesting to dive in and see where we end up with some of this stuff, especially since I haven't done picks on this show for a while. I'm always sitting here going, have I picked that yet? I don't have that problem this time. Let, let's have Jeffrey start us off though with picks. Okay. Yeah. You know, one thing that's been around for a while, but I started using it again for a while for me since I've used it, but I started using it again this week was Signal Messenger. If you guys have used it or not used it, it's, I believe it's an open source project. It's uh, mostly for, you know, people think about it as like an app on your phone for, you know, just from the privacy standpoint of everything sort of being and, and encrypted and you, know, you don't have to sign up with, there's no account to sign up with. There's no information that they're continuing, you know, that they're keeping of your information, that sort of thing. You basically just sign up with your cell phone number and sort of similar to WhatsApp, it's sort of just, you know, just anybody in your contacts list who also has Signal, you'll be able to, you know, communicate with them, messaging with them, that sort of thing. One cool thing that I used this week, though, is that I, was, I needed to exchange a, you know, sort of a, a more sensitive document with somebody. And they have a, a pretty cool desktop um, app as well. So once you already have it on your phones, you can put, put it on your desktop and then you can attach files and move them back and forth, which is pretty cool. So just something that if you haven't used before, it's kind of kind of a nice way if you're a little bit concerned about, you know, emails and email attachments or something else that's sensitive. You don't want to just sort of, you know, having out in the in the Google Gmail world or whatever, you know, any of those where, you know, we all know that our information just sort of gets uh, thrown out willy-nilly to anybody who's, who's willing to pay for it. So kind of a cool little app and uh, definitely worth having, you know, just in case you ever need it. Cool. Henry, what are your picks? Yeah, I've heard about Signal. I'll have to check it out. I haven't checked it 
thus far. Um, on my end, uh, I'm going to pick a book this time. Uh, so I've been reading Trustworthy Online Controlled Experiments and a really catchy title there. It's a book on the process of running kind of well-defined experiments, but also just kind of the overall development life cycle. You know, whether you're doing operations builds or building a, a feature-oriented product, it's written by some of the leaders in this space. Ronnie Kohavi has really done a ton working with Microsoft and now Airbnb and Yashu um, has been leading experimentation at LinkedIn. Also, Diane Tang, I'm not as familiar with her work, but they uh, really bring a wealth of knowledge to the, the process of actually building the platform and how to run those effective experiments. And it really puts you in that agile development mindset and in a more practical and hands-on way than I think you know, looking at you know, th those more theoretical books on agile development uh, in the first place. And I found it to be incredibly useful, both for my own direct work, but, but just to kind of think about development as a whole. Nice. I'm going to throw out some picks. I haven't been on the show for a while, like I said, so I get to pick some of the stuff that I'm working on these days. So I have two courses that I'm putting together. One relates a bit to this audience and the other one only relates to if you want to start a podcast. So the first pick is, and, and I'll just shout out about the podcast one first since I brought it up, podcastplaybook.co. It took me a little bit to kind of figure out where I wanted to go with it, but I have figured out where I want to go with it. So pulling that stuff together. And uh, yeah, it's just going to be a step-by-step. -step. Here's how to build, grow, monetize, etc. your podcast. And the the focus is much more on the end of sort of creating the movement and a career around the podcast, then it is about sort of the technical details of how that stuff all works. But the flip side of it is, is that, you know, I am going to give you all the technical details that you need to run it. But we're going to go well beyond that just because some podcasts are about a movement, some podcasts are about a business, which in essence, you're doing the podcast to create a movement around your business and things like that. So lots of strategies. It's also giving me the opportunity to try new things with DevChat's podcast. So our podcast host might get tired of me saying, hey, we're going to try this for a little while. But anyway, yeah, that's, that's pretty exciting for me. And then the other thing that I'm working on is what I'm calling the MVP program. And that's Most Valuable Programmer. I kind of include DevOps in there similar to the conversation we had earlier with Ram. And basically, it's just a walkthrough on creating the, the framework that you need in order to be that sort of go-to person in your organization. The questions I get asked that kind of led to this are, how do I become a senior developer or DevOps engineer? Or how do I stay current with all of the stuff that's moving around out there? And the reality is, is that to get that senior DevOps title, you have to get hired by a company that will give you the title, which isn't very impressive or that hard, incidentally. So what it really comes down to and what most people mean is, how do I become a serious contributor on the team that I'm on? And so that's what it's about. So we talk about designing your career, knowing what you want to know, keeping current, evaluating your own growth, how to either work within the job you're in or find a new job how to generate content, how to do outreach, ongoing learning, speaking at conferences, that kind of thing where it's, okay, you know, I'm, I'm the MVP because 
I'm the one that people come to when they need something done or they need some kind of knowledge or experience that I have. And so that's that's what we're building out there. Probably going to put together a podcast boot camp for the one and an MVP boot camp for the other and kind of get those rolling and get those started. And then once you've been through the boot camp, then you'll be eligible to join some ongoing learning group coaching mastermind kind of setup. So anyway, that's that's what we're looking at there. So if you're interested in either of those, the one is at devchat.tv slash MVP. And the other one is at podcastplaybook.co. And I, I won't go into any other picks because I took way too long anyway. Ram, what are your picks? I'm not 100% sure. <laughs> Chuck, I, was, I wasn't prepared for that. It's all good. My, you know, I have a newborn, so I have literally no time between just getting my day job and just taking care of my newborn. I mean, so, you know, literally, like, it's a great question. I, sh- I you know, it's an interesting question. I don't think I have a real good answer for that. Ram has a newborn. He picks sleep. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> that is the pick, the newborn. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that, that it's all good. We really appreciate you coming and talking through this with us. It, it's been a fun conversation, a lot of good information here. And yeah, hopefully some folks who are kind of going through the similar transformations can take some of this advice and run with it. Thanks a lot, Chuck. Appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. Thanks to you. Thanks to Jeffrey and Henry. And uh, yeah, we'll wrap this one up. Until next time, folks, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.